optimist about this How am I gonna be an optimist about this? If you close your eyes This is Real Talk with Ben Tompkins Presented by Four Roses What's good, y'all? Happy Friday. How's everybody doing? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Four Roses Bourbon. Here's what we got for you today. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to Uber Stories Part 6. There was a lot of good Uber Stories in yesterday's episode. Sorry for back-to-back content. Um, The week just kind of got away from me. I sat down and started doing the Uber Stories episode, and I had way more than I anticipated. And it, it makes for a really good episode. Yesterday's episode is really good. If you haven't heard it, go listen to it. And if you like it, you enjoy it, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you're following along on Twitter and Instagram at BennyTomp18. Uh, we are on Facebook at RealTalkWBennyT. But leave me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That stuff really helps. And I really enjoy seeing that and reading that. And if you've enjoyed any of the interviews or the Uber stories that we've been doing in the last couple of weeks, then please let me know about it. I would love to see it. Okay, uh, today's guest is Tim Schladen, and Tim is a licensed counselor and a social worker who's had a private practice for 24 years, working with individuals, couples, groups, and facilitating workshops for both men and women. And addiction is one of the areas that he specializes in, as well as vulnerability, empathy, self-compassion, and shame resilience. All right, we talk a lot about those topics. We touch on those topics, but we really, really go deep into addiction. Tim just celebrated his 34th year of sobriety, uh, but has a self-described PhD in drug use, okay? Having been addicted to crack cocaine, heroin, morphine, and alcohol in the 80s. Uh, But he cleaned up his life. He decided that he had reached his rock bottom. He wanted to make a change, went back to school, and has been helping people work out their issues with those topics that I mentioned over the last 24 years. And he's a next-door neighbor. We were just out walking one day, and I was like, hey, how's it going? And he's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, uh, he's, he was he was asking me if I uh, was uh, the like the sports television guy. And I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes people see my face and they they they, they kind of know like, oh, that that's somebody or like I recognize that person. What does he do again? You know, and then uh, but, it, but it turns out he was mistaking me for somebody that uh, he thought that I looked like on WHAS 11. But I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I do a sports radio show. I did at least. Uh, maybe that's that's it. And he's like, no, 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 no. But ends up sparking a conversation where I'm like, oh, cool, yeah. So like, I tell him what I do, and then I'm like, what do you do? And he said, well, you know, I help people out with addiction and their marriages and all kinds of aspects of life. And I'm like, oh man, come over, come walk down the street, come down to the basement. Let's fire up the podcast and let's get you on. So uh, he shares some really deep insights. Uh, about personifying addiction as an entity that wants to kill us, a really powerful mindset tool, okay? The moment that he knew that he had reached his rock bottom, what kept him committed to change throughout his recovery process, what it's like being obsessively on guard against relapse in the early stages of sobriety when you are making those changes, and then eventually how over time it just becomes how you do your life, you know, developing 
your new lifestyle. Uh, we talk about the notion of geological cures, right? If I could only move to Florida, if I could just get the kids to college, like all of the little things that we tell ourselves as reasons for you know waiting to make changes. Um, and certainly, you know, if you think you're not happy somewhere, uh, there, there's a little saying: wherever you go, there you are. Okay, there you're gonna be. And so, this notion of geological cures, we talk about that. We also talk about why society has such a difficult time recognizing addiction as a disease and why the stigma of addiction is harsher on women than it is for men. Why it's harder for women to ask for help, raise their hand, say, I am an addict, I need some help, than it is for men to do, okay? And also, we wrap up spending some time talking about the power of vulnerability. It was awesome. I... I think you're really going to, I mean, it's just raw, man. It's raw and it's real. And we spend about an hour talking about this stuff. So um, you're really going to enjoy it. I hope you do. And if you do, then leave me a little rating and a review and say, hey, have Tim back on. We really liked him. Okay. Because I really liked him and I'm going to have him back on, but I hope you do as well. If you did miss Uber Stories Part 6 yesterday, uh, there are a handful of really good ones. I spent a lot of time on this, okay? But uh, stories range from a guy telling me about his best friend that, you know, how he spent $17,000 in a local strip club, uh, a guy who had just walked out of this two-hour meeting from his uh, with his boss and just vented, um, a 65-year-old real estate professional who came in and uh, had some pretty... A strong choice of words to use about just kind of like her her approach to life and business and clients and it was awesome. That one was awesome. It's so funny. Um, and the ultimate nice for what writer? How to leave your disabled husband? There's a lot, and I'm just like barely scratching the surface. But go back and listen. They are so good. The dialogue is so good, and I think you'll really really enjoy those ones. So, uh, looking ahead next week, we've got Uber Stories Part Seven. And uh, uh, <laughs> a guest to be announced. I'll let you know a little bit more about that later on in the week. But that's all we got. I'm going to go ahead and toss now to my conversation with Tim Schladen. Tim Schladen now joins the show. Tim, how you doing, man? I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down to do this. You know, it's funny. We were just kind of crossing paths. You're a neighbor. Yes. And we started talking about, hey, what do you do? You know, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And, and you said that you are a counselor and a social worker and you help people with addiction and you help people with empathy and vulnerability and, and all kinds of different stuff. And I was like, this is definitely somebody I got to have on the podcast. Mm. So thank you so much for sitting down to do this. I'm glad I could inspire you to have me and it t reached you and touched you in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. Because yeah. actually you look like the sportscaster on the WHS uh, 11. Remember I approached you and thought you were a sportscaster. Yeah. Which was like, and to, so I was doing a re sports radio show, and so I was like, well, how would he, maybe he would know, I don't know, but yeah, different guy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Not as good looking. Yeah, him, me, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, let's start by kind of introducing yourself and kind of where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, and kind of tell us about your job. Yeah. So, uh, Tim Schladen, um, I grew up in Louisville. Uh, over in Audubon Park area, uh, went to St. Stephen Martyr, uh, which is a uh, local Catholic uh, grade school there, and then ventured over to St. X for four years, and then went to JCC for a year, 
and got sidelined and went out and got a Ph.D. in drug use and uh, then went to treatment in uh, 1986 and was a freshman at 37 at JCC again. Wow. And then uh, went from there to Spalding and got a bachelor's and then went got a master's program at uh, University of Louisville Kent School and got out of Kent School in 96. Nice. Yeah. So it just goes to show that you're never too old to start new things, right? You... I, I mean, I use that often to try to inspire people that are wanting to sell themselves short on time or use time as a cop-out, meaning because uh, when I was wanting to use it as a cop-out or very rich, uh, rich of heart, because uh, I don't know what he had in his wallet, but a rich of heart old guy in a, in a 12-step meeting, I was bemoaning the fact that I was going to get out of college when I was 45. And the guy said, well, you'll be 45 anyway. And I'm like, hmm. Mm-hmm. So it made me think of that old Blues Brothers song about a wish sandwich. You know, two pieces of bread and wish you had some meat. <laughs> so I went ahead and went and got the meat, which is my, all the sheets of paper that show that I've uh, uh, crossed the threshold of those educational uh, components. Nice. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> so that's what I, I so I use that to push other people along because I was working with a young man the other day and he's thirty two and he, he said the same thing I did. Oh man, I'm thirty two. So he's using his age as a as a deflator instead of looking at while he's thirty two, he's got ten years of life experience that he would be a sophomore going back to college that other sophomores in his classmates won't have because they'll be 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. So he's got a richness of life and life experience that makes that makes college – actually, college was much easier when I went back late because I was able just to use all my life experiences other than statistics and math. You can't use life experiences <laughs> there. <laughs> I, I hate math, honestly. Oh, trust me. <laughs> That's why I learned to speak for a living. There you go. Uh, <laughs> two and two is how much? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, when when people do go back to school later, they're much more appreciative of it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're not going, most of the time, if you go when you're older, you're not going on somebody else's dime. You're there, and you are actually engaged in the conversations. And I remember when... Um, there used to be older people in my undergrad classes at UK and not very many, but you know, you would get some and they would be asking some, like all the questions. Right. Yeah. And some people would be like, eh, fuck this. Try hard. That's you know? right. Come but on. It's like, but it's like, Hey, this, this person's come back and he's got two kids and he's sitting here paying with, the, with his own money. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I went back, I was dedicated. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew how I wanted to do it. And yeah, it was my time. So I wasn't going to waste my dimes. Right. Mommy and daddy weren't fronting me the money. Or, or <laughs> Uncle Sam wasn't giving me a student loan. Actually, Uncle Sam didn't give me a few of those. But it wasn't any grants. So it was Tim's dime. There you go. And uh, I'm going to uh, spend my money wisely. There you go. <laughs> so you get out of college. And uh-huh. then what was your kind of first job out of college? And what yeah. put you onto the career path? that? Because uh, you, you mentioned you've been working as a social worker for 24 years now. Yeah. So, yeah, what was that beginning like? Can we can we back up a little bit? Of course. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, what's cool about in my story is that in 1970, when I got out of St. X and went to JCC, I wanted to major, uh, my major was social, sociology, because I, and they said, why? And I, well, I said, I want to help people. Well, 1986, when I get out of treatment and I meet a voc rehab counselor, 
what do I want to do? I want to help people. So they guided me towards the social work field. So in a way, I think getting out of treatment was my first graduation. Mm. Okay. In an, as an adult um, with eyes wide open about how to go and do life. Mm-hmm. So that graduation was, um, my first job out of that place was uh, I drove a floral truck and made four thirty an hour. Big money. <laughs> Big money. And, uh, and that job lasted a year. And then I got hired back at the treatment center to begin to, uh, and that really began my, my work in the field. So in 1987, I was hired back, and I drove folks to meetings at night. 12-step meetings and so I uh, took them to meetings at night and I ran what's called a wrap-up group they just talked about their day when we got back so that was my first venture and then a spot came open in an outpatient group to be a co-facilitator and I was working on a certification in substance abuse and my mentor approached me and said would I like that job and you know of course I'm chomping at the bit oh my god yeah but then I had a part of me that still believed my self-worth was about a speck of flash yet, right? Mm. So uh, we were going over to dinner one night at the hospital, and I said, hey, man, I said, you know, I don't know about this. I said, the only thing I've ever done is sold cars, bartended, and sold dope. And uh, he just kind of laughed. He said, "That's you got all the qualifications, man. <laughs> and what he hit me with, though, that was so sweet, he said, to me, good therapy is your job is to sell someone on their value and worth as a human being. And I was like, now, you know what? I think I can, I can run with that because I was a shitty car salesman. Uh, I, I wanted people to like me, but I could, never could go for the clothes because I thought they wouldn't like me if I went for the money. So, <laughs> so I'd ring around the mulberry bush forever. It never would go for the number. Uh, and in this, I could ring around the mulberry bush, and the, it's not my job to go for the number. It's the client's job to go for the number. Sure. So I began to work as a co-facilitator in what's called an intensive outpatient group. So at that time, they moved treatment from 30 days inpatient to – they still had 30 days inpatient, but they started having four-day-a-week, four-hour-a-night groups and found that they were very effective also. So someone might start inpatient detox, have a week or so inpatient, and then transition to that – for another month so I started running those groups and then you know again JCC Spalding and U of L and, and worked for that that organization it was Baptist Hospital here in town I worked for them for all those years and then at 90 uh, in 96 right after I graduated a man approached me to run a um, a, a federal uh, program for him he had a federal uh, contract where we did drug screens on federal probation and parolees So I started working for him, but my agreement with him was, if I start working for you, can I also begin to hang a shingle and start a private practice? Mm -hmm. And so he said, as long as you do take care of this, this office is yours to do with what you want to. So I began in 96, you know, one client, one client. It's kind of like throwing a pebble in a pond. You know, you just start the ripple. And uh, that was 24 years ago, and I've got a lot. I've got a. I think my pond has turned into an ocean, and I got a lot of ripples <laughs> going on now in it, because I'm, you know, I'm as even with all the COVID stuff, I'm as busy as I want to be. And uh, COVID has forced you to do a lot of like Zoom or, or go to meetings with clients, right? Or are you still doing face to face right no, now? I'm, no, no, I'm not going back face to face till after the first of the year. Um, in when did I quit? I quit on uh, I closed the face to face down on St. Patrick's Day, March seventeenth. Okay. Started zooming the next day. 
Um, there's an there's an old statement that goes around the twelve step groups by a philosopher named Herbert Spencer, and he was 1800s, and he said uh, uh, there's one th- barrier that keeps a man or woman blocked in everlasting ignorance, and that is contempt prior to investigation. So before I began my Zoom, I had all kind of contempt about anybody doing anything teletherapy. I thought it was a bunch of bullshit. It's da 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 da. And the real reason was, I'm a technology immigrant. I don't know squat about technology at all. You know, I'm I'm an AARP technology guy, which is pretty slow learner. And so, truth was, I was scared to do Zoom. I didn't know what the hell to do. And uh, so my sweet wife walked me through it and set me all up and. Uh, it's been really going well, and I'm Zooming, and some people that don't have Zoom, I do FaceTime on their um, iPhones, and one woman has neither an iPhone nor a Zoom account, and we do Facebook Messengers. There you go. And so, and what I have found is that it's as effective, um, it's different, you have to operate differently, you have to, when, I'm, when you're face-to-face, you really kind of read people's bodies and what's happening, and with Zoom, you really have to really look and zero in on their eyes Mm -hmm. their eyes will shift when any kind of nuance is occurring and then you kind of gently ask questions about the nuance that's happening in their face and that's and i'm not going back to after the first year there you go yeah so when because why i don't want to be in a face mask (laughs) and have you 10 feet from me and you're in a face mask and we're kind of talking through muffled you know like we got sandwich meat in our mouth i don't want to do that yeah yeah i just i just got linked up with a new therapist at psych bc and we did our first in-person visit together we've done two now well the first one was phone yeah second one was through the mask Uh which is you know it's fine yeah but why was your self-worth so low when you were starting out? Like, was that something from yeah. your childhood or? Yeah, it was a, totally a remnant of my life experience. Um, um, grew up and uh, with well-intended people who, um, my mom's a fiery Irish woman and, um, she wouldn't know the word compliment if her life depended upon it. <laughs> so everything that was ever done was always wrong. This was wrong, that was wrong. You could do surgery on her on her kitchen floor. So uh, there were a lot of pecks of criticism that always came my way. Mm-hmm. And then as, as a uh, someone with ADD, what we've discovered via research is that a child by the age of 12 with ADD is is criticized 20,000 times more than a child without ADD. So that's 20,000 little darts to the heart and soul of a boy. So um, I just took it on that I just was not good enough. Um, And then the way I interpreted what the Catholic Church was teaching me definitely said I wasn't good enough. So, you know, when I... uh, Found masturbation at the age of 13. I knew I was going to hell, so screw it. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Uh, One-way ticket. <laughs> boom, I'm gone. So if hell feels this good, I'm, I'm put me on there, baby. So, uh, so that's a long way of saying it. Just growing up, I never got met by, uh, again, the, the belief was criticize someone into their greatness. That doesn't really work. You lift someone into their greatness. Mm -hmm. And so well-intended, but they just missed the mark. So um, wasn't wasn't smart enough. That wasn't the truth. Um, 
I was I became very clever very young. I became very manipulative very young, uh, because I had to learn how to micromanage and deflect all my mom's hypercriticism. Okay, mm-hmm. so in a way, doing that, that's not genuinely me. So it's like, who in the heck am I really? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and I can remember too. My dad, and my dad worked a lot. He worked eighteen hours a day. We were working class, probably working poor, lower to middle class, lower 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 middle class, mm-hmm. or upper lower class, whichever you want to call it. Just mm-hmm. blue collar people. And he worked a couple jobs. Uh, had a little bit of a gambling problem, or a bit of a gambling problem. So some money started going out that way that I didn't know about until I got much older. So I didn't have a male mentor either around. So I joined the Boy Scouts, and I loved it. I went camping and had a blast with the guys. But what occurred was that because my dad wasn't there to walk me through kind of the learning curve of being a Boy Scout, uh, I stayed a tenderfoot. That's the first rank you get. Mm -hmm. So I'm a tenderfoot in the seventh grade, and there's kids in the fifth grade that have a higher rank than me. Well, you think a seventh grader is going to listen to a fifth grader? I don't think so, right? <laughs> so the scoutmasters came at me and said, hey, you got you to go up, move up a rank. So I dove in, or halfway dove into this Boy Scout manual. Again, ADD, didn't pay attention, and thought I could wing it. And they, you, you sit in a panel and you present some Boy Scout model stuff. I don't forget what the hell it was. Mm-hmm. But I just tanked it. And they just looked at my head and said, no. And so I, I can remember walking out of the church, walking down this lonely, dark, Hess Lane um, sidewalk, dimly lit by a few street lamps, saying, fuck them, I'm never coming back here again. So again, another chance to get lifted up, and there was no support to carry me over to the finish line. Okay, So... <clears throat> At 16, when I got drunk the first time, I thought I had found heaven, and the angels sang, and the skies cleared, and the sunlight came out, and uh, life was good, I thought. (laughs) I'd go to dances at St. X, and uh, uh, I'm a pretty good dancer for a white dude, and um, but I wouldn't dance until I snuck out. And we drank cherry vodka or some bullshit, booze, whatever the hell we drank then. Something. something nasty. <laughs> whatever it was, it was nasty, right? And uh, so I went out and got hit on some nasty and then came in and, you know, became James Brown and John Travolta all rolled into one. <laughs> but before then, I would. it was as if I had Velcro on my ass and I'd be pinned against the wall. I couldn't get off the wall. And I knew I, and I wanted to dance, wanted to ask this girl to dance, and I just couldn't do it. Got me some liquid courage. All bets were off. One go. dance contest, different stuff like that. So again, so then what happens? What happens then is that let's see. I feel like shit. I don't believe in myself. I drink. I feel good. I believe in myself. So hmm, do I just leave it with my own devices and not feel good about myself, or I found the magic bullet? Or so you thought. At the time. So I thought, and well, well, you see, here's the thing about addiction that's, that that sometimes people jump over. There is a horrible end, and there's many people that die from it. Okay, crushing, but there's a moment in time that it's actually salvation. Because in those moments when the Velcro lifted, when I had the burnets and the cherry vodka, all that self, all that lack of self worth and low self esteem, it left. Mm-hmm. So what I thought was a friend morphed into a, 
a terroristic enemy, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I work with with people in, in, in therapy is I believe we all need to thank addiction for the moments it helped us out of time at the beginning and then cuss it out for the way it ended up. Right. Okay. It's so a, it's a thank you, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. As as is a lot of addictions with with whatever it is, social yeah. media or our phone or, yeah. but it's it's such a fine line that you walk when, uh, you know, you're feeling like I'm at my wit's end. No one loves me. I'm abandoned, and then you take something or you drink something and all that goes away and then you think oh this is great i just want to do this all the time right Mm -hmm. yeah and then eventually it gets into kind of the self-destructive behavior because then if if it really gets out of hand then it's becoming the only thing that you're thinking about doing yeah yeah well even now if you think about it i mean and you use social media i mean i call cell phones weapons of mass destruction for relationships (laughs) they truly are and there's uh I, I do some teaching at some different classes, um, and one of the things I've done, my my cousin, she's a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and she ran the nurse practitioner program down at UofL for decades, and she would have, always have me come in and teach about addiction, and so I, uh, so I had it inside, and uh, every time I would do the class, I said, can we start class this way? I said, I'm going to ask everybody to give me their phones and put them in a box. And then I'm just going to go up and ask everybody to close their eyes and take a breath and see what's happening inside. And, uh, <laughs> man, you could have, man, the nest, the looks I got. But the gift of the exercise for them was for them to breathe and be with how they feel about me taking their phone. And they on, they on a little bitty micro level now know what it feels like for someone that goes into treatment or goes into detox. Because I would always ask him, so what are you feeling? Well, I'm sad, I'm pissed, scared. Who do you think you are? <laughs> right? All the things people felt in detox. Okay? So it just speaks to how, you know, my phone gives me all these little dopamine bu- bumps mm-hmm. that says somebody loves me. Oh, they texted me back. They must love me. Mm. You know, it's crazy how seductive that is. It's, po- it's, it's constant reinforcement of those things. B- bingo. And yeah. you start to seek it out if you're not, you know, or, or the opposite side, like, you know, I'm a younger guy and I've got a girlfriend now. But when I was dating and asking girls out, you have such a good conversation, right? Yeah. And then a couple of days later, three days later, you wait the three days, you go to text them, nothing back. And you're like, fuck. That's right. I thought I was all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it can tank you. It, it's tanked me before. It's I imagine definitely. getting ghosted like that is a pretty good hit to the gut, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got a pretty good ghosting story. <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe we'll 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 save that one okay. for another day. Okay, I want to keep this about you, sure, man. More Thank about you, you yeah. okay? Um, you know, maybe we just should start a twelve-step group, Ghosters Anonymous, Ghosting Anonymous. No one would show up. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We'd all promise that we would. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the last minute, boom, nothing. <laughs> Sorry, poof. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to stick with addiction. This is always yeah. something that, that has uh, really fascinated me to the point where like, I, I, you know, I started this podcast because I, I wanted to help people. I want to help people. Yeah. And I've had people on in the last several weeks who have either dealt with like boosting productivity, like they've been productivity coaches. They've dealt with defeating perfectionism and self doubt and, and some of those things. But 
in the back of my mind, I have an idea of what if I did a podcast that was just called like Rock Bottom or something. Like that, and it was just addiction stories and people talking about like, you know, how bad it was for them, how deep it took them and and what ultimately kind of helped them out or what helps them day to day. Because that's I've spent time in AA meetings. Mm-hmm. I uh, I've I've had certainly my run-ins with addictions. I, I, I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't really have one addiction per se. I cycle through just a bunch of different stuff. You just like them all. Uh, yeah. I hear me too. I'm a stimulant <laughs> addict, right? So, but, but I, spending time in that room was great for me because I got to hear other people talking. And, and it, it took something that was so stigmatized, addiction, and really put it into perspective of this isn't just... Like, like I'm going to go to PT in an hour, right? It's not like something you go to PT and you work on it for a couple times a week for a month and then it goes away, right? The way that these people talked in the room was, this is what I'm doing hour to hour. This is what mm-hmm. I'm doing day to day. And that's really where my mindset started to shift like, damn, this isn't something that is going to go away. This is going to be something that I have to monitor all my life or right. else it can really... I, I can get super manic, and as a manic depressive mm. who starts self-medicating, you just, the wheels can fall the, off quickly. All bets are off, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bad down the hatches. What is a, um, I was just talking to a woman today, and um, she was saying one day at a time, and this lady's a seamstress, so what I offered her is that it's actually one stitch at a time, one breath at a time. There would be days early in my recovery process driving around for that floral company, and I'd have to drive just through some neighborhoods that I either scored dope, sewed dope in, or drank in. And, you know, you'd drive, drive up to a red light, and you'd look at a bar and go, gee, I wonder what they were doing in there. Well, I know what the hell they're doing in there. They're getting loaded. So I would feel that urge to kind of jump, you know, pull in, and I would just pray to get to the next light, next traffic light. And, then, and I, didn't know what, I didn't know what the hell I was praying to. I just said, hey, dude, if there's something out there, dude, help me out Mm -hmm. and just get to the next traffic light and then get to the next traffic light. All I'm trying to do is buy myself a moment of time so I can catch my breath and come back to the sanity of my life was crazy. I was dying and uh, not let that momentary seduction of say, hey, come on back. I'll Mm -hmm. take good care of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, not to let that win the moment. So it is a breath at a time for many people at times. For me, it was totally. And one of the things I talk about when I'm working with folks is I ask them to personify addiction as uh, an entity that wants to kill them because it does. And uh, so I said, what I want you to think about now is however long your shirt sleeve is, that's as far as that entity will ever be from you. So my shirt sleeve is 34 inches, 36 inches, actually. So it's only 36 inches to reach out and grab one, whatever that one is. Mm -hmm. That beer, that joint, that line, that bong, that one hitter, blah, 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 that serene, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's pretty close, okay, to walk all the rest of the days of your life once you wake up to all this, that, that that killer just stays right there, Okay. So, yeah, you have to be – It's not a, early on, it's an obsessive on guard. Over time, it becomes uh, how you do your life. It's just what you do. 
Yeah. I was just sober 34 years in the beginning of August. And I, my brother called me and said, you know, gave me some props, and which was really sweet and felt really cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, as we were talking, I was like, wow, I've been sober half my life because I'm 68. I would have never believed that, mm-hmm. you know. You know, I'd go to meetings and people would be sober as long as me, and I'd say, yeah, right. You know, hell, for me, sober, you know, to make it the day was good enough. Mm-hmm. And then over time, it just becomes, it becomes your lifestyle. Addiction's a lifestyle also, along with the biochemical piece, but it is a lifestyle. And then you have to develop a new lifestyle. More with Tim in a minute, but first, I got to tell you about my friends at Four Roses Bourbon, who would like me to tell you that winning deserves a worthy reward, and you should celebrate life's wins with Four Roses family of award-winning bourbons. Sit back relax, take a sip, and savor the victory. Learn more at fourrosesbourbon.com. Be mellow, be responsible, my friends. Now back to Tim. What was your rock bottom? My rock bottom was, um, let's see, my wife and I were living in um, West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, In 1982, Two, a friend of mine moved to St. Croix, and uh, I was selling cars, <laughs> crappily. <laughs> uh, I do a lot of tech. Real side story: I, when I was selling cars, I'd always go to the car, new car manager and say, "Hey, I, someone called me on the phone and they want a test drive." They didn't want a freaking test drive. I was just going to score dope. Uh, but I, So I did a lot of test drives. Never sold a car. Uh, so anyway, my buddy moved to St. Croix and said, "Dude, you got to come down here." And uh, he called me the day after Thanksgiving. He called me Thanksgiving Day, and he was ripped. And uh, I said, man, call me back Sunday, sober, and we'll talk about it. Well, I guess he wasn't that ripped because he called me back Sunday, and I went down. And so he called me Sunday. That Friday I was in Miami and took a plane over and moved to St. Croix. Okay? Uh, In St. Croix, uh, I did what I always do um, was go to the bar. So the first night I went to the bar, there was this woman across the room that just God smacked me. And uh, she's now my wife, and that was 38 years ago. Nice. Um, and so, but I, what I was doing was geographical cures. I was running to find myself. If, I, if we could go here, it'll be better. If we could go here, it'll be better. So St. Croix was my first geographical cure. I went to Nantucket, back to St. Croix, back to Nantucket, landed in West Palm Beach. Well, I'm grateful I got to West Palm Beach because that was in 1983. 85 and that was in the the probably the first couple of years of the crack epidemic so uh i was introduced to crack and uh crack kicked my ass crack kicked my ass so i was doing crack and uh doing iv drugs i was uh, injecting morphine heroin dilated things of that nature so uh chris uh the week before christmas my wife wife worked at victoria station which was a prime rib place there it was a national chain and um i had a bag of dope and so i snuck into the bathroom and it wasn't to use the facilities other than to close the stall door tie off a vein and shoot up so i'm in there and i'm getting ready to shoot up and someone opened the door and a christmas carol came in 
I heard a Christmas carol. I love Christmas and just the spirit of all that. Peace on earth and all that just reaches my heart. I think that's called a social worker's heart. Uh, But something about it just stopped. Everything stopped for a minute. And I was like, man, this is fucked up. Now, it didn't stop me from shooting dope. But that I left the bathroom and got a quarter and called my dad and said I needed help. And three weeks later, I was in treatment. Now, I came home for Christmas, and I told him I was going into treatment the day after Christmas. And New Year's Day, my dad said, that was five days ago. If you don't go into treatment tomorrow, you can, your ass can leave this house. Mm-hmm. And it was the only time my dad had ever drawn the line. Again, my fiery, critical Irish mom drew the line 20 years ago. <laughs> she grew up with a bunch of drunken brothers, so it runs in the family. Uh, and so I went, so that was my bottom. Just I heard a moment in time where everything slowed down, and it was just, I don't know, angel, whatever you want to call it. Time stopped for just a second, and everything flashed, and I went, this is fucked, and I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't do it a little longer. doesn't mean I got out of treatment in, in the January. You notice I said my birthday was just last August. So February to August, that's about six months, right? So I, I chipped along for about five months using just off and on, very periodic. Mm-hmm. But I kept involved with my recovery process. I kept going to meetings and stuff like that. So I, that's a long way of answering your question, but I hope I answered your question. No, it's great. Okay. That's a great story. Okay. And I think... Uh, so many people, and I've done this where you talked about geo, uh, geographical cures, right? It's like this thing that we do as human beings where it's like, if I can just get the family to Oklahoma, yeah. or if I can just get to the end of the year, right? And it reminds me of this quote uh, from Mad Men that says, wherever you go, there you are. Mm-hmm. So you might be able to move to Florida or get the job in California or wherever you're trying to go. But if you don't deal with what is causing you to to reach for the drink or the drug, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter where you go. Your problems are going to follow you everywhere. Yeah. I, I feel like Forrest Gump's mother now. So not life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, life is like a bag of BVDs. And if you got a bunch of skid marks on the BVDs you're wearing, wherever you move, until you, those skid marks are following you until you take them off. That's pretty good. Why did you like that? I, like I feel I feel like I'm a philosopher today. <laughs> so life is like a box, a bag of BVDs <laughs> with skid marks. <laughs> but there's a couple in there without skid marks. You just gotta find the damn things, yeah. right? <laughs> and be willing to make the change. Yeah, that's, right? You gotta change. <laughs> gotta change your oil, brother. <laughs> so okay, wow. So three weeks, <clears throat> then you get in. And um, what helped you through the process? What kept you wanting to make those changes and stay consistent with those changes? Uh, something, something got in my bones and my body. Something did. I don't know what it did. My mother would tell you it was the prayer to St. Jude. I don't know if you know any Catholic patron saints, but the St. Jude is the Catholic saint for a hopeless case. Well, you can take it to the ranch. I was hopeless. And, uh, but something got in me. And I knew, um, I knew that I knew my relationship with Rhonda was hanging on by dental floss. So I didn't go into treatment for me. You've got to go to treatment for yourself, people say. That's bullshit. Just go to treatment for whatever. Mm. You know, if you go to treatment for, a, for an oak tree, who cares? 
you get sober. So uh, that's really what it was. Was that I, I, she was, is, will be the love of my life till the day I take my last breath. And um, I knew that she was close. So uh, I went into treatment and wrote her letters every day and all that. <laughs> She's later told me, she goes, do you really think I believe those damn things? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was well-intended uh, spiritual bullshit just to try to convince her that I was okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth was, it was all the truth in the long run. But I said it from a place of no social currency or no no backbone to back it up. You know, I had no um, uh, no consistency over time to say, oh, he's saying these words, but he sure hadn't shown me he can walk those words. Sure. Well, over time, that became my words and my actions became the same. Because God knows, I promised a gazillion times I wouldn't, and I did, and I did. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, that day came, and I said I wouldn't, and I did, and I haven't. And here we are. And I think. Um I think that, what am I trying to say? I think in the beginning, when you're trying to make those changes, you have to say those things. Even if you don't have any credit and people are looking at you like, okay, we'll see in a week, right? Yeah. Well, but but you have to will it into power, like speak it into existence, right? Yeah. Well, the old fake it till you make it. Yeah. And that's really what it was. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But I, people told me, do this. I did that. And then, hmm, that became real. So, yeah. So it is about willing it. It is about intentionality. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're spot on with that. Okay? Now, did I know any of that? No. But I just knew in, in my heart and my bones that I was going to die, and I knew I was going to lose her before I died. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready for either of those to happen. Did it help, like... Um you said what what happened in 86 you that's when i went to treatment okay yeah. and in 86 lynn bias famously died of cocaine mm-hmm. use yeah. did did anything that was going on in society kind of have an impact on on the way that you viewed um you know kind of the way that you had been living uh bias i was already clean when bias died so i understood that death mm-hmm. as far as on crack uh, or he was doing free base. He was still smoking cr- cocaine. No, it wasn't. Uh, my 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 view of the world was not that global. My view of the world was survive, survive, survive. Wake up. What do I have to do to use today so I don't feel bad? And how do I get away with it? And that was the course of my day for probably the last three years. And that was it. World, world events, who gives a rat? Yeah. I want to ask about um, MDMA therapy. Mm-hmm. So for some people, they might look at that and say, well, that's you know just a, a drug user making an excuse yeah. to use a drug, right? Yeah. But what I've learned in, in my experiences with it, certainly not in a therapeutic sense, but just as a <laughs> recreational sense. You're on therapy. Right. You know, <laughs> hey, self-medication. That's right. But but speak. I spoke with somebody that has taken it in a very um, regimented therapeutic mm-hmm. um, trials and things like that. And and what he was saying was, 
you know, a lot of times, like for a drug user, you'll reach to use to take you away from whatever you're feeling. But when you use MDMA therapy, then you really are sitting with your emotions. It brings mm -hmm. all of those traumas and all of those feelings to the forefront. Um, as a social worker and as somebody that advises people and counsels people with, with all different kinds of the topics that we're talking about today, what are, you, what are your thoughts on MDMA therapy as a, as a viable kind of solution to, yeah. to some of this stuff? Well, if you would have talked to me 10 years ago, I would have been um, uh, vehemently opposed to it. Uh, but that was 10 years ago. We all change. We all, our eyes get wider. Hope, hope, hopefully, I always keep a student's mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm a I'm a f proponent of it, you know, if because, you know, if it slows you down enough to let you have an experience that relinquishes the trauma and lets you see the other side and really piece stuff together from a, you know, a huge psycho spiritual perspective, then I'm a big fan of that. Now, I'm and in that it's not uh, I don't want my clients to be. Dr. Jones and go out and do their own MDMA, sure. right? Yeah. Not so much. <laughs> or go to uh, uh, Appalachia and, and the guy's wife's making meth in one side of the trailer and have an arawaska experience. And that's, <laughs> no, 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 we're not talking about that. Uh, but there are some places around that really do it in a very professional, solemn, sacred, spiritual way. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm okay. I'm a buddy of mine just got back from one in... Um, um, Orlando, Florida, and, uh, you know, they drummed and they rattled and they chanted and they just set up the whole thing. And, you know, he said, I wasn't going down there to get high. I'm just going down there to, uh, if life is a journey, this is just another way to deepen my knowing about me on this journey called life. Mm -hmm. And he had a profound experience there. So. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Well, there's a place in town now that's, and what they're showing is some, um, it's now FDA approved. It used to, it was off label, but ketamine is being used a lot for yeah. people uh, to treat really long-term chronic depression. There's a place on Lagrange Road called Serenity. They do uh, ketamine injections. Dr. Bob Stewart in town, he does ketamine injections, and there are some also some other uh, docs that are prescribing the the nasal spray. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, like people, like there's two kinds of different people. And this is what I've always said about religion, right? And I stole this from somebody. I can't remember who from, <laughs> but I always thought it sounded good. So that's I'm a, like, no, that's what I say, right? That's right. It's yours now, man. It's yeah. not that person. It's yours. So in Eastern religions, they look within, mm -hmm. you know, they they, they really focus on the spirit and the soul, and they look within. In Western religions, like America, we, we look up. We look right. up to God. We look up right. to, to, to whatever God you idolize, mm -hmm. right? And I think that there's a big divide in, in just almost like that fundamentally is, is who you pray to or, or how you deal with trauma or problems or, mm -hmm. or handle successes either, you know, celebrate yourself Yeah, is looking within and, and kind of knowing who you are. And that, that starts with kind of asking those questions of who am I, where am I going? Right. And, yeah. um, 
I don't even know where I was going with that, honestly. Well, let me but jump on that. Let me piggyback off that. There's a man named Charles Whitfield. He was uh, an addiction researcher in the 80s, early 90s. And um, <clears throat> from a spiritual uh, context, he said it's his contention that, because uh, he was really a follower of Eastern uh, philosophies, that uh, addicts, alcoholics were fallen angels. And every time they got high, interesting word, got high, they experience ascending back to sit at the hand of God again. And as soon as I read it, I went, I mean, I got cracked in the head. I went, well, duh. I mean, it just <laughs> landed in my bones. And then if you look at when someone gets high and, and the substance or whatever it is hits, you know, well, what, what, what sounds do people make? Ah, mm, oh. And if you track that vowel consonant sound, you can find that sound um, in many of the world religions as it relates to their deities. Hmm. So I think it speaks to the spiritual nature of addiction and wanting to kind of reconcile with whatever that is that's greater than us and whatever you might want to call that. I think there's something deep. And, and again, that's scratching the surface and uh, and the and the depth of understanding is way above my pay grade. I'll let you know next time I come back, okay? <laughs> next time I'm <laughs> to be reincarnate. Well, that'd be next that time <laughs> that'd be that one. <laughs> Why do you think people have such a difficult time recognizing addiction as a disease? I think it's oh we as a culture, me included in that culture, we are so easy to judge. We're a bunch of judgmental, you fill in the blank. And so it's so easy to point fingers and moralize. Mm. And before research really began to catch up and we began to understand the brain and the workings of the brain, what did you see? You just saw people drunk and, well, why can't they put the plug in the jug? What's wrong with them, right? You know, they're, you know, whatever you want to call them, a lot of denigration stuff. So that's why AA became anonymous was to avoid the judgments of the general public that didn't really understand. So AA started talking about alcoholism as an allergy, which made sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. That whenever someone with this allergy drinks, they break out. Right, they break windows out. They break bar stools out. <laughs> break bones. <laughs> break out. bones out. You know? <laughs> They're trying to break out of jail when the bondsman comes. Right, uh, so I think it's just easy to judge instead of slowing down. And uh, the first line of the prayer of Saint Francis says, "Seek ye first to understand versus being understood." And I think we're. I am. Most of us are so wired biasly that we demand being understood. Mm -hmm. that I won't be curious enough about your story to really sit with you and kind of go lean into it and go, wow, I get it. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's a really good one. Okay. That answer your question? That's yeah. a really good one. And, you know, the, the, the tide is turning, and yet there is still a tremendous bias that says um, you don't have a backbone, you're not praying hard enough. You know, just all kind of weak. judgments. You're weak. Yeah, you're weak. You're not strong. Come on. And, you know, and that's why I'm, it's easier for, you know, our, our mythology says it, it's that's what a man does. So 
it's easier for a guy to show up and get sober than it is a woman. Because a woman that's loaded, that's an addict, that's an alcoholic, you know, gets called what? Whore, slut, bitch, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. On down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, an assertive woman, assertive man is patted on the back, speak your mind, dude, way to go. An assertive woman, for many years and still is, is called a bitch. Right. You know, so women have a hard time showing up to get sober. All because of this, the intense societal shame on it. Hmm. Doesn't mean a guy doesn't have to work through that shame. But on some level, we have social sanctions or social support to get crazy and be, be messed up. Mm-hmm. And he'll grow out, you know, the old, oh, he'll grow out of it. Right? <laughs> boys will be boys. boys will, see, that, all that, right? He'll grow out of it. Boys will be it's boys. Excusing poor yeah. behavior. He just can't hold his liquor, you know, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And some guys grow out of it. In the grave, you know? Yeah. And some guys grow out of it by just stopping. Some guys grow out of it by going to treatment. Uh, you know, there's research shows that people quit in various and sundry ways. So, and more people get sober not in AA than in AA, actually. Hmm. Okay. More people get sober just by putting the plug in the jug. Going to a therapist, going to a church group, um, or just by God toughing it out, reaching a moment in time and going, this is crazy, i got to stop. Mm-hmm. And they, through force of will, do it. I'm, I like the path I've chosen because all of my friends, a lot of the people I hang out with, are all recovering people. So I found a family of choice in the recovery movement. Mm-hmm. So um, those are all my running buddies. You know, I'm a pack and I'm a pack animal, so <laughs> I like to have have a pack to hang out with, and because uh, God knows I tried alone, and God knows I tried to plug the jug, and and God knows that didn't work. Yeah. So everybody's going to get it the way they get it, but no, that's that's a lot of people. Because when I said that, you kind of went, hmm, it's got to be a misnomer. Yeah. Okay. But, why should people embrace the power of vulnerability and, and speak about the power of being vulnerable? Well, any, if, you, if you look around and, you, and, you, and anything anyone's done that you go, wow, I really like that. That's an admirable. They've all been vulnerable. They've all taken a risk. They've all, taken, they've all kind of stepped out of the box. Mm-hmm. either through expression or actions or feelings. And so, again, men, culturally, women have it too. Vulnerability is what? Vulnerability is weakness. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability looks good on you, but it ain't for me. You know, I look for the vulnerable people and admire them, but I mean, it's good for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you drink that vulnerability soup, and I ain't going to touch that bullshit. Right. And... um being vulnerable is really allows yourself to uh, be in your be in your best self, and my best self in my vulnerability knows tears of sadness and joy, uh, and knows the fire of being angry and saying stop, and sometimes you know the fire of being angry and saying stupid shit. Mm-hmm. You know, being vulnerable allows me to be fully me and allows me to uh, live a full life. But also if I if I fall short or blow it, come back to, to say you've been and say, hey, man, I don't like that. I did that. You know, that was wrong. I believe I hurt you when I said that. You know, or, or this morning, my wife and I, we got the house cleaned uh, 
last night. And uh, she goes, hey, um, today we're going to have a no crumb day in the kitchen, okay? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's it, yeah, right? <laughs> so she left to go to work. And, uh, and uh, you know, I just felt, I felt that rumble in my belly. So I called her up. I said, hey, honey, uh, that didn't feel good when you said that. It was that simple. But that's still vulnerability. Because my story is you just don't say anything, and then you let all those little microaggressions stick, and then you blow up later, mm. right? Mm. And she went, oh, I, that did sound kind of parental, didn't it? I apologize. And she was vulnerable too, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we do in that moment? We reaffirmed our relationship. We reaffirmed how much we meant to each other, and we reaffirmed it was okay to tell the truth, okay? Mm-hmm. So I think and vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity you sitting here with me you inviting me to come here was vulnerable right sure anytime you ask for something that your heart's seeking that's vulnerability because you might get an f you or a no right or ghosted <laughs> or go, go, yeah. go, right <laughs> or ghosted right yeah, yeah there you go yeah. see getting ghosted again and uh so, you know, the fact that you're out in the dating world and doing all of that, every time you hit somebody up, that's vulnerability, Ben. Yeah. Okay? That's your strength. Okay? Yeah. That's the resource that, that, that your spine sits erect in and you just get to look in the mirror and go, yeah, she goes to me, but you know what? I put myself out there, didn't I? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. You get a wish sandwich or you get to create some meat. <laughs> Vulnerability is the meat in the wish sandwich. It's a great mindset to have where you see vulnerability as a strength rather than a weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I've had to I've had to certainly adopt, you know, because I mean this podcast is called Real Talk. You know, I can't get on here and tell half truths or bullshit myself if I'm ever going to hope that this catches on and yeah. and gives somebody else um I guess it's it's you know it's like sometimes you talked about that velcro mm-hmm. and you're kind of stuck on the wall yeah and I see this a lot where I'll go to music festivals or I'll get out in groups of people and I can tell that there are people who are just like right there on the edge of really kind of putting their guard down and saying I'm here here's who I'm here with I'm going to be myself, authentically myself, and I don't fucking care if these people don't like me. At least I can walk away with knowing that I put myself out there, and that's fine. I can live with that, right? Yeah. And I think uh, sometimes, not all the time, and I don't, I, you know, I, 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 I hope I don't make it sound like, you know, I have the power to unleash all these other people, or that like I'm putting <laughs> myself up on that pedestal, like because right. that's definitely not it either, but. You know, I'm I'm just aware sometimes when people are kind of like right there and they're like, should I do this? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and like getting them to feel comfortable in, in those in those examples. And a lot of times um, just getting people to talk about their day or what's bothering them or what is motivating them at that time. Like, you know, um, that's kind of what drives me. And that's why that's why I started doing this. You know, like I was doing yeah. the sports thing. But it really wasn't catching on, and I was like, "This isn't really good to anybody because I'm not even doing like I'm passionate about certain sports, but I don't I don't care about a lot of this other stuff. <laughs> right. You know, I might as well if it's going to be real talk, I might as well talk get about real, some right? real shit. Yeah, yeah, let's get real with of this course. thing, right? So I'm I'm really glad. Um, 
we're, we're kind of getting short on time here. So let me um, say one more thing about the vulnerable piece, yeah. just for you, or just for me, or just for your audience, is that we live in a culture that is so externally oriented that we believe our worth is there, wherever there is, outside of us. So most of us grow up hustling for our worthiness. So if I'm vulnerable, I'm not hustling for anything because my self-worth is with me and in my heart. But if I'm peeping to see if I'm being seen or heard, then I'm not really fully me. You're holding some of my worth, and I'm trying to hustle it from you. Mm. Okay? So don't, don't be a hustler. <laughs> Basically, in, in, in my example, that Keep it real. Mean, oh, keep it yeah, real. And, and don't worry about the downloads or the Thank follows. You. Or the ghost. <laughs> or, or the ghost. Yeah. Lord knows they're going to come and go. Yeah. You know? Uh, okay. Unfortunately, I have a heart out here in about five minutes because Boom. I've got to get the PT, but, uh, this was amazing. This was awesome. Thank you. And I know that people are really going to enjoy listening to this because it is real because it is so enthralling, I think. And, and so just, it grips you, you know? And, and I love that about this conversation and I would really like to continue, um, and have you back on, Good. you know, in in a month and, yeah. and you know whenever but uh i'm really glad i'm really yeah. glad that we did this so thank you so much you're very very welcome man thanks for having me so i hope you guys enjoyed that i i obviously did i thought that it was uh just uh i mean just so many of those topics really really interest me and and piqued my interest so uh thanks to tim for doing that and I look forward to the next time that uh, we can do that again. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please leave me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, wherever you listen. We're on Instagram and Twitter at BennyTomp18. And we are on Facebook at RealTalkWBennyT. Everybody have an excellent weekend. And I will talk to you guys next week. That's it for me. I am Ben Tompkins. That's Real Talk.